My name is Mariko Kawano. I'm a professor of international law at Waseda University School of Law, Tokyo. This is a second lecture. I'm going to talk about International Court of Justice and disputes involving the interest of third parties to the proceedings or the common interest of the international community as a whole or of the community established by a convention. The International Court of Justice, hereafter referred to as the court, has settled the dispute between two states, state parties as far as the contentious proceedings are concerned. The principle that the jurisdiction of the court is based upon the consent of the parties has been respected in order to ensure the respect for the sovereignty of states. It is the reason why Article 59 provides that the decision of the court has no binding force except between the parties and in respect of that particular case. The procedure of an essentially bilateral nature is still well applicable to most of the dispute referred to the court. However, the changing circumstances and structure of the international community and international law may cause difficulties to the court. Two difficulties might be pointed out. One is the increasing importance of a third party or parties in the proceedings before the court, and the other is the question whether or to what extent states are allowed to become the party to a dispute concerning the breach of legal rules to protect the common interests of the international community as a whole or of the community established by a convention. With regard to the first problem, it should be noted that the increasing interdependence of states has resulted in the situation that a dispute referred to the court on the basis of the consent of specific parties may have influences or impact on other states. Such influences or impacts are sometimes so significant that the status or the rights and interests of those third parties should be taken into account, even if the parties to the dispute before the court intend to refer that dispute as their bilateral dispute. As far as the second problem is concerned, it is necessary to refer to the development of international legal rules through international conventions. Nowadays, increasing number of conventions provides for the rights and obligations of an amalgamative nature and cannot be separated to bilateral rights and obligations between the specific contracting parties. Such a type of convention 
often establishes a community of its contracting parties, and all the contracting parties share the common interests in the compliance and implementation of the rules under it. Then it should be questioned which party of the convention of such a nature is allowed to have the standing to invoke the responsibility for the breach of the obligation under it. It should further be noted that there is another type of convention that aims at the establishment of legal rules for the protection of the interests of international community as a whole. Further interesting point of those conventions is that they are designated to provide for the conventional rules that are binding only the contracting parties. But their ultimate aim is to establish rules to protect the common interests of international community as a whole. Moreover, some of those rules may be accepted by the international community and obtain a customary nature, providing for the binding rules to all the members of the international community as a whole, through the development and general acceptance after their conclusion. Then it may be possible to raise a question whether every contracting party or every member of the international community has the interest in the compliance and implementation of such rules that are originally conventional and attained customary international law. This question may lead to the standing of the contracting parties or members of the international community before the court to invoke the responsibility for the breach of those rules. It might be necessary to consider how the nature of the dispute concerning the breach of those rules are of the and of the injuries caused by the breach can be distinguished from those in the case of the breach of ordinary rules. One might raise a further question whether every contracting party or every member of the international community has sufficient interest in the compliance and implementation of those rules and is allowed to have the standing in the proceedings before the court. In this lecture, I'm going to discuss these two issues. Let me start with the discussions about the issue of a third party or parties in the proceedings before the court. Two different rules should be taken up with regard to the status of a third party or parties in the proceedings before the court. One is the so-called monetary gold principle, which is applied when the third party whose interests or rights would be affected by the decision of the court regarding the dispute between the parties 
And that party, that third party, is not willing to be involved in the proceedings of that case. This principle was established by the court in its jurisprudence since its judgment in the monetary gold case. In this case, the court considered that as far as the determination of the claims discussed between the parties involves the determination of the interests or rights of a third party, the court should not have the competence to entertain those claims without the consent from that third party. Since the monetary gold case, the respondent in appropriate cases argued the application of this principle as one of the preliminary objections regarding the admissibility of the claims. For example, such an objection was upheld in the, in the East Timor case. In this case, the applicant, Portugal, brought the claim against Australia concerning the legality of the agreement regarding the Timor Gap concluded between Australia and Indonesia. The court took the view that Australia's behavior could not be assessed without firstly entering into the question regarding the legality of the conduct of Indonesia. Therefore, it concluded that the claim of the applicant could not be determined without the consent of Indonesia. The monetary gold principle may lead to the rejection of the willingness of the parties to resort to judicial settlement. Therefore, for the application of the monetary gold principle, the court is required to consider carefully the contents of the subject of the dispute between the parties and of the legal interests of any third party concerned. In those considerations, the court should take into account two contradictory elements. One is the respect for the sovereignty of the third state, and the other is the respect for the will and intention of the parties to refer their dispute to the court. Because of these two elements, the court strictly assesses whether the interests or rights of the third party constitute the very subject matter of the dispute before it. Contrary to the cases in which the application of the monetary gold principle, the rules for intervention of a third party are for those where a third party or parties express its willingness to participate in the proceedings before the court. The statute provides for two sorts of intervention. In accordance with Article 62, a state that believes it has an interest of a legal nature that may be affected by the decision in the case 
is allowed to submit a request to the court to be permitted to intervene. In Article 63, Paragraph 2, every state has a right to intervene in the proceedings when the construction of a convention to which it is a party is in question. Moreover, in the intervention pursuant to Article 63, the intervening state is equally bound by the construction given by a judgment if it uses the right of intervention. Regardless of the types of intervention, such a request may introduce some additional element into the proceedings between the parties. Therefore, in the precedence of the court, except in the cases where the parties did not raise objection to the request for intervention, the court has carefully examined the appropriateness of the request for such a purpose. The court has found it necessary for the third party to establish the existence of a legal interest that would form a part of the very subject matter of the dispositives of the judgment. It can be suggested that in the same way with the application of the monetary gold principle, the court is strict in the examination of the request for the permission of intervention. It seems that when the court examines such a request, it tries to balance the respect for the will and intention of the parties to settle their dispute by the decision of the court on the one hand, and the respect for the interests or a right of a third party in the proceedings between the parties. The relationship between the monetary gold principle and the rule for the intervention could clearly be seen in the land and maritime boundary between Cameroon and Nigeria case. In this case, the respondent, Nigeria, raised the preliminary objections regarding the rights and interests of the of third parties. Firstly, the respondent argued that the determination of the territorial boundary in the lake chart between Cameroon and Nigeria was related to the point where the frontiers of Cameroon, Chad, and Nigeria met. Second, Nigeria argued that the maritime boundary beyond the point G would involve the interest of a third party, that is to say Equatorial Guinea. With regard to the interest of Chad, the court considered that the legal interests of Chad as a third party do not constitute the very subject matter of the judgment of the court on the merits. As far as the interest of Equatorial Guinea were concerned, the court took the view that the objection did not possess an exclusively preliminary character. 
after the judgment on the preliminary objections, Equatorial Guinea requested the court the permission to intervene in accordance with Article 62. Equatorial Guinea indicated that the object of its intervention was to protect its legal rights and to inform the court of the nature of its legal rights and interests, which could be affected by the court's decision in light of maritime boundary claims advanced by the parties. Both of the parties did not object to this request, and the court confirmed that the requirements for the permission to intervene pursuant to Article 62 had been met. Consequently, Equatorial Guinea was permitted to intervene in this case. It should be noted that since 1980s, the number of the cases has been increasing where the objection is raised regarding the admissibility of the claims because of the, of the lack of indi indispensable third party in accordance with the monetary gold principle, or where a third party requests the permission to intervene pursuant to Article 62. Such phenomena reflect one of the features of contemporary international dispute, that one international dispute between specific parties has impacts or influences to the rights and interests of other states which are not involved in the proceedings before the court. Even if the proceedings in one case is in principle are proceeded between the parties and the decision of the court has no binding force except between those parties and in respect of that particular case. The extensive impacts or influences to the rights and interests of other states cannot be neglected as far as those impacts or influences are substantial. In the international community of interdependence, it cannot be denied that the involvement of rights and interests of a third party or parties is becoming more important. As far as the application of the monetary gold principle or of the rules for intervention are concerned, it is admitted in order to protect the rights of or interests of a specific third party in the proceedings regarding the dispute between specific parties and the role of a third party in the dispute settlement process is restricted to ensure the protection of its own rights or interests. However, in the present international community, there are some customary or conventional rules to protect the common interests of the international community as a whole or of the community established by a convention and the subject of the dispute as such may constitute 
the concern of every member of that community. In that case, the standing of every member of the community concerned should be examined in the dispute concerning the compliance and implementation of the rules to protect the common interests of that community as a whole. The idea of the needs for the protection of the common interests of international community as a whole was expressed in Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which provides for the existence of peremptory norms or use cogents. It should also be noted that the court admitted the distinction between the obligation of a state towards the international community as a whole and those arising vis-a-vis -vis another state. The court called the former obligation as obligation erga omnes. It must be suggested that both of the notion of use cogens and obligations erga omnes recognize the necessity of the rules to protect the common interests of international community as a whole in the international community since the end of the Second World War. On the basis of these notions, the United Nations International Law Commission, hereafter referred to as the IRC, agreed to introduce the distinction between an international delict and in an international crime at the stage of the first reading of the draft articles on state responsibility. Although such a distinction was welcomed by some states, it was criticized by other states. Two salient points can be deduced from such a criticism. One was the appropriateness to introduce the notion of the criminal responsibility of a state into the international legal system. And the other was the doubt about the notion of an international crime within the sphere of codification and progressive development of international legal rules. It should be admitted that there were views that appreciated the notion of an international crime from the viewpoint that the, that the international community needed some sort of special system of state responsibility in the cases where the common interests of the international community as a whole was seriously affected or where the, the international legal rules to protect the common interests of international community as a whole was breached. The IRC fully noticed these contradicting arguments concerning the first reading text. And the last special rapporteur for the draft articles on state responsibility decided to delete the expression of an international crime and to introduce 
the expression of serious breach of an in obligation under preemptory norms of general international law in the second reading text. It might be necessary to explain the basic intention of the introduction of the notion of an international crime into the first reading text. Such a notion was considered to have a special effect as a new type of responsibility of state in international community for the following two senses. First, all states in the international community could considered to be the injured state and be entitled to invoke the responsibility of the wrongdoing state. And second, the legal consequences of an international crime are more serious than those of an international delict. The new expression in the second reading text is not only a nominal change of the title, but also exerted influence upon the substantial elements. The most important substantial element is the standing of the states for the invocation of responsibility. The second reading text distinguishes the standing of an injured state from the one of a state other than an injured state. It also mitigated the serious nature of the legal consequences. The new text regarding the consequences provides only the obligation of cooperation to bring to an end any serious breach through lawful means and of non-recognition of a situation created by a serious breach. Although the legal effects of the serious breach of an obligation under preemptory norms of general international law were significantly mitigated. The argument in the IRC for more than 30 years and the final admission of some distinction of the modes of international responsibility of states has influenced the development of international legal rules for the protection of the common interests of international community as a whole. The advisory opinion of the court in the construction of a war case might reflect the influences of the IRC's work. In particular, when the court gave its opinion regarding the consequences of the wrongful acts of Israel, the court did not only indicate the measures to be taken by Israel, but the court also found that some of the obligations violated by Israel was of a nature erga omnes and indicated the consequences for all states or the United Nations. It also found that the consequences for all states' parties to the First Geneva Convention. These findings could not be made if the consequences of international wrongful acts are restricted to the bilateral relations 
between the specific parties to a dispute. It cannot be denied that the international community has already recognized the needs for the development of legal rules to ensure the protection of the common interests of international community as a whole. Moreover, some conventions have contributed to such development. The question is, to what extent such recognition has led to the development of procedural rules of the court for the invocation of international responsibility of a state for the breach of such rules. It might be possible to raise the question whether the substantive changes of the some rules of international law through the works of the IRC or other conventions has made the court reconsider its findings in the Southwest Africa cases that the respondents should establish the injuries to their own rights and interests under international law in order to be accorded the standing before the court. As I have already, be, as I have already explained, the absence of Indonesia was at issue in the East Timor case. The applicant argued that as Australia breached the right erga omnes, it, its claims are admissible despite the absence of Indonesia in the proceedings before the court. The court did not uphold this argument. It took the view that the erga omnes character of a norm and the rule of consent to jurisdiction are two different things, and that it could not act to entertain the case, even if the right in question is a right erga omnes. In the armed activities, new application 2002 case, the court found that, I quote, the erga omnes character of a norm and the rule of consent to jurisdiction are two different things, end of quote. In this case, the court further stated that, I quote, the mere fact that rights and obligations erga omnes may be at issue in a dispute would not give the court jurisdiction to entertain that dispute, end of quote. Then the court distinguished the violation of parliamentary norms as a matter of the merit and the establishment of the court's jurisdiction as a matter of procedure. In the armed activities new application 2002 case, there might have been a room for criticism about the strict attitude of the court regarding its jurisdiction. Even among the judges, some of them questioned whether there had been there had no room there had been no room for the court to exercise its jurisdiction to entertain the application. 
For example, Judge Coloma expressed his deep concerns about the situation of African countries where genocide is at issue and stated that the court should have entertained this dispute in his dissenting opinion. In their common separate opinion, judges Higgins, Koimans, Sima, and Oada raised the questions about the appropriateness of the general application of the compatibility test expressed in the advisory opinion in the reservation to the genocide convention case. In fact, the court did not the court did notice the seriousness of that dispute, although it rendered a strict decision regarding the procedural conditions. It expressed its serious concern about the situation in that area in this judgment. From these precedents, it should be concluded that despite the development of substantive rules of international law, the procedural requirements of the court have not changed so much, and the bilateral system for the proceedings of the court remains unchanged. Although the court takes a strict view about the procedural requirements, it has had some opportunities to deal with the issues relating to the breach of the legal rules to protect the common interests of international community as a whole or of the community established by a convention. For example, it was the court that distinguished the international obligations into two categories. In the Barcelona Traction Light and Company case, it stated that there was an essential distinction between the obligations of a state towards the international community as a whole and those vis-a-vis -vis another state, and that with regard to the former obligation, I quote, all states can be held to have a legal interest in their protection. They are obligations erga omnes. End of quote. The impact of this view has been obvious since this judgment. Even in the cases where the court denied its jurisdiction or admissibility of the claims, the findings of the court in the examination of those issues have contributed to the development or clarification of the international rules to protect the common interests of international community as a whole. For example, the court admitted explicitly that the right for self-determination is the right erga omnes in the East Timor case. These findings, as such, has clarified the nature and the status of this principle in the present international community, although the court denied the admissibility of the claims. In the legality of use of force cases, the court rejected its prima facie jurisdiction 
on the basis of Article 9 of the Genocide Convention. In this context, it confirmed that the element of intent to distract a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group is required in order to establish the existence of the dispute falling within Article 9 of the Genocide Convention. In some other cases, the applicant has succeeded in the fulfillment of the procedural requirement of the court to discuss the breach of the rules relating to genocide or use of force. Then the court could examine the contents of those legal rules in more detail in the context of ordinary contentious proceedings. With regard to the provisions in the Genocide Convention, the judgment in the application of, genocide, of the Genocide Convention, Bosnia and Herzegovina versus Serbia and Montenegro case should be noticed, in which the court confirmed its jurisdiction and the admissibility of the claims. In this case, the court gave important findings regarding the several provisions of that convention, including the detailed examination of the element of the intent, confirmation of the prohibition of the commission of the acts of genocide and related acts undertaken by a state, and the territorial scope of the application of this convention. Let me take up another example relating to the rules to prohibit the use of threat use or threat of use of force. It was the judgment of 1986 of the court in the Nicaragua case that confirmed the customary nature of that rule. In this case, although the court did not explicitly decide the peremptory norm nature of this rule, it discussed the development of the works of the IRC and recognized that both of the parties did not deny such a nature in their discussions. The findings of the court in the Nicaragua case can also be contributed to the discussions regarding the scope of the act falling within the use of force or the conditions of the act of self-defense or of collective self-defense. The same contribution can be seen in other cases, including the cases of oil platforms and armed activities, DRC versus Uganda. It should be concluded that at least at present, we cannot expect too much with regard to the possibility of the contribution of the court to the development or clarification of the international legal rules to protect common interests of international community as a whole because of the strict procedural requirements of the contentious proceedings. However, as far as such requirements are satisfied, the court is competent to discuss those issues 
and the findings of the court have exerted influences on the discussions regarding those rules in international community. The present system of the court was established in the 1920s. Although the international community has experienced a great change since then, the basic principles of international law, for example, the respect for sovereignty or equality of states has not changed. Therefore, the strict requirements for the status of a third party or a clear distinction between the procedural conditions and the substantive rules may not be easily changed in the light of the sound administration of justice in the proceedings of the present court, whose jurisdiction is based on the consent of the parties. However, we cannot deny the gradual changes of the international community and of the structure of international law. As a guardian of the legality of the international community as a whole, the court should respond to the new needs from the international community. Further discussions will be required with regard to the role of the court in the future. Thank you very much.